Welcome to the Boxing Day edition of the Current Federal Tax Developments. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by the Lascalzo Institute and the Earth State Society of CPAs. Now, as I say, we're going to take a look this year for Boxing Day. I want to do something a little different because I've got a rather weird schedule and we've got some things happening and I'm going to be on the road and I want to have holiday time. So what we're going to do this week is take a look at what are some of the top developments from this week, from this year, let's say, in taxes. So kind of a look back here as we relax here right at the end, getting ready to go forward for the next tax season. So we're going to look at what I consider kind of the top five things we discussed this past year that were developed in taxes during 2017 as a way to kind of take a look at the end of the year. I was looking for items that will have an impact in 2018 and later years that we need to worry about. And also that probably might be helpful to consider or reconsider in getting ready for the upcoming tax season. So we're going to kind of look at these issues coming up. So kind of in the order from, let's say, least to most, though not really, but kind of in that order. Let's start with a case that you all may remember from April. And this is the one of Castigliola et al. versus Commissioner. This case I chose because it was really the first case we've ever had that looked at a concept that a lot of us have been using, a lot of people have been using, which is if you have an LLC operating as a partnership, can you pay guaranteed payments uh, to the partners who are operating the LLC and pay it at a level that's equal to what would be a reasonable salary in, let's say, an S-corporation context. And then can you treat the rest of the income as flowing through not subject self-employment tax? We've never really had a case on the issue, but that was what this case was about. The law firm had paid guaranteed payments. They'd paid it to the partners of the firm. They had paid it at a level that was set to be a reasonable salary. If you remember the history of this case, uh, they received essentially advice from a CPA, 34 years of experience, who had served on NASBA's board at one point and who suggested to them using this methodology. Uh, he's not the only CPA suggested. Other CPAs I know have been using this quite consistently. And it was one of the options that people tried to work on after, you know, we had the issue back in the 90s where the IRS tried to issue proposed regs. Congress said, no, we don't like those regs. Don't do anything for two years. Then Congress did nothing. IRS did nothing. And we're sitting here trying to figure out how to handle LLCs for self-employment tax. Now, the way self-employment tax works, if you take a look at the definitions of self-employment income under 1401, you'll note that generally all business income flowing out to a partner from a partnership is considered to be self-employment income. But there is a caveat if, and basically an exception, I should say, if in fact you're paying this, this you know, part, your partner is a limited partner, then there's an exception, 1401A13, that says that that will not be considered self-employment income unless it's guaranteed payments paid to the partner for services actually rendered. But LLCs aren't limited partnerships, and they aren't really like what we had before. They're pretend partnerships. And so the question became, how would the court treat them? We got 
some information a number of years ago in 2011, actually a few years back, that was the Rankmeyer case. But that that was clearly a bad facts case. That, that's the old case of, you know, pigs get fatter, hogs get slaughtered. And Rankmeyer was clearly the ultimate hogs case where the attorneys in Rankmeyer attempted to take, basically take nothing flowing through the law firm as self-employment income. That was not the case here. Rather, they treated their income guaranteed payment as being subject to SC, and they paid some substantial self-employment tax. But then they had additional income that was flowing out, and they treated that as not subject to SE tax. The question we need to answer here was, okay, this was not Rankmeyer. It didn't look that bad. Would the court accept it? And our problem was, in this case, the court didn't accept it. The court found all income was subject to SE tax. A key thing they looked at initially was that these attorneys were still participating in management, just like they did back when it was a general partnership. Also, the court pointed out, unlike a limited partnership, this entity had nobody who was a general partner that was liable for all liabilities of the entity. So the court decided this wasn't really a limited partnership. So rather, they took the position from Rankmeyer that effectively, since these individuals had been doing the same thing they were doing back when it was a general partnership, since nothing really seemed to have changed but the title, the court took the position that there was no authority for them to divide their income between self-employment income and other income. The one problem with this case, to be totally honest, is, you know, it's still a pure service organization. Uh, I don't like the fact that the court is giving us all or nothing decisions. That's part of, you know, that's a problem. Is this an all or nothing issue? But we still have not really had the case where there is a substantial investment in capital and whether then you potentially could divide between SE and not SE. Because the court seems interested in whether you're primarily an investor or a worker. And of course, the attorneys in this case are primarily service providers. So the court seems to have decided if you're primarily a service provider, you're going to have to pay the SE tax. But the question still arises as to what we can do in other situations that aren't quite so there's no invested capital and so therefore you can't be an investor type of situation. Another big development this year was Revenue Procedure 2017-34. Now this one is unfortunately, the, a big part of it is going to die in basically a week. So we have very little time to react uh, to cover one part of this, but there still is, if you're listening to this early, shortly after it's posted, you would still have time if you work really, really quickly to react to this. But there is a second part that's still good and that's going to apply going forward. And so for this podcast, we're going to concentrate mainly on the part that would work going forward after January 2nd. The IRS had been getting a large number of private, private letter ruling requests for taxpayers who hadn't made a portability election, but then it was decided later we want to. So the IRS came up with this automatic relief provision. Most important thing to note, this relief provision only counts if the estate was not required to file a 706 and did not file a 706. Okay. If the estate was required to file a 706 or did file a 706, this procedure doesn't count. If the estate was required to file a 706, then the IRS position is they have no authority to grant late portability election relief, period. So you're just out of luck. If you filed the return 
but you accidentally, you know, you meant to elect portability, I guess, but forgot to. I'm not sure how that would have happened. But if that did, then apparently you could still ask for a true private letter ruling request to try to get your election. The automatic relief applies. So again, your condition is you did not file a 706. No 706 was required. The decedent passed away after 2011. And you filed this return through the before the later of January 2nd, 2018. There's where the date's coming up very quickly. That's going to be a problem. Or two years after the date, the taxpayer passed away. If you do that, then you're considered to have a valid portability election. Now, this does not open up a statute of limitations if, for instance, you filed a gift tax return in the interim and actually paid gift tax that wouldn't be due with portability. If that statute is closed on that year, because let's say it was filed in 2012, it's a 2012 gift tax return, you filed it in 2013, that statute closed in 16, tough luck. But if a statute's still open, you could still get a refund on those particular gift tax returns or even a second 706 you could get relief on by filing for this, and then you'd file a refund claim on that second 706. If you qualify for this relief, the IRS makes it very clear that this is the only way you're going to get it. If you try to get a private letter ruling, when you could come under this ruling, they're simply going to kick it back to you. So as we say, don't try to get the ruling if, in fact, you qualify for this relief. Our next development I put up I put up a little bit higher just because it's one case that dealt with two issues. So we want to give it kind of double counting. And both of these issues were kind of interesting. This is the case you may remember from early last year of Hardy versus early this year. Last year, I guess, if you waited and listened to this after New Year's, of Hardy versus Commissioner. Tax Court, tax court Miranda Decision 2017-60. Now, the first part of this decision looked at whether Dr. Hardy, who is a surgeon, had passive activity or did he materially participate in a surgery center. Dr. Hardy was a plastic surgeon. Dr. Hardy had a 15% interest in a surgery center that was opened. Dr. Hardy actually did surgeries at this center, but as a practical matter, he did them in the same manner as he would have done them had he not owned any interest. He put the money in this center because the hospital in the town he was operating out of uh, really didn't have, it had one operating room. It tended to be overbooked and tough to schedule in. So they decided they needed a surgery center to handle outpatient surgeries that didn't really need the hospital. So the doctors in town got together. Dr. Hardy put up money, as did the other doctors. This surgery center was built. Dr. Hardy did not actually manage the center. And go down there doing any of the work. If you know patients, when a surgery was needed, and to get to keep from having major problems with insurance fraud, uh, Dr. Hardy could not sell patients to go to the surgery center. Rather, he had to offer up all the options that were available. So he'd offer the patients the hospital, the surgery center, and another nearby surgery center in a nearby town. Uh, 15% of his patients took the surgery center that Dr. Uh, Hardy owned the interest in. For reasons that, you know, basically because that's what the K-1 seemed to look like, Dr. Hardy was treated on his returns for 2006 and 2007 as materially participating. 
But in 2008, the CPA preparing Dr. Hardy's return asked Dr. Hardy what he did. Dr. Hardy explained that he did surgeries down there, but only if patients wanted them there. The patients paid the surgery center, not Dr. Hardy. Dr. Hardy did not get any money from the surgery center for referring surgeries there. And the CPA concluded that Dr. Hardy really wasn't materially participating in this enterprise. And as such, it should be passive income. This was important because Dr. Hardy had other passive loss generating activities that generated eh, about, what was it, $56,000 a year in losses or so on average. So Dr. Hardy had these losses he wasn't taking when in fact, this thing was generating way more than 56,000 of income each year, uh, he should have been able to take the losses from his, from, this, uh, from his other activities. So they filed it this way. Now, the IRS objected. They said, wait, wait, wait. In the past, you said you materially participate. We think that means by implication, you group this with your surgery practice. Or if you didn't, well, we think it should have been grouped because obviously you're doing surgeries there. Uh, the tax court disagreed. The tax court found there was no evidence on the prior returns that Dr. Hardy had actually grouped this with his medical practice. He just, treat, you know, there, there was no, I, no clue he had grouped it with anything. And they said, number two, no, Dr. Hardy was not, you know, the IRS has no authority. The, this had not been established as a way around the passive activity rules. Dr. Hardy had not carved out what would otherwise have been part of his practice create a separate entity that he would claim not to materially participate in and then have income from that. Rather, he'd simply invested in a surgery center. He, had a, he was a totally passive investor and the income that came out should have been passive to him. But this wasn't the only issue that Dr. Hardy uh, ended up uh, winning on in this case. Same case, but this time, and again, same facts, he had been a surgeon at the surgery center. He'd performed surgeries there. And he did not do anything day-to-day -day in running the center. Now, the problem was the K-1s for all these years had shown that Dr. Hardy had self-employment income. It turns out, of course, that, well, Dr. Hardy wasn't really doing anything. And for a partner, that probably doesn't matter, except, remember, this is an LLC. And we're looking at the question of how do you apply the Rankmeyer decision? The court found that looking at the facts in this case and what he was doing, as we explained, Dr. Hardy was more of an investor rather than being you know, an active participant like the attorneys in Castigliola or like the attorneys in Rankmeyer. So applying the logic of Rankmeyer, the court found that Dr. Hardy actually should be treated as just an investor and like a limited and as a limited partner and as such there was no self-employment income on dr hardy's earnings so dr hardy got passive income so he could claim his passive loss and dr hardy did not owe self-employment tax this is important because remember the k-1s on this thing showed dr hardy was you know self-employed and gave the implication that he was active down there it's only because the CPA preparing the return decided maybe I should figure out what Dr. Hardy's really doing that we actually got to the position of being able to find out that this was passive income, not subject to self-employment tax. Means it is somewhat useful sometimes to ask questions. 
we have, and these sorts of setups, these surgery centers have sprung up all around the country with doctors investing in them. So many of you probably have the Hardy fact pattern. If you do, you know, kind of make sure that you're not accidentally reporting this as not passive. If in fact he's like Dr. Hardy, he or she's like Dr. Hardy, and not picking it up as SE income again if he or she is like Dr. Hardy, which in most cases they're going to be. The doctors are not going to be down there running the center. Our next to last big development is to remind you of something that's been going on since 2015, but the IRS has out the proposed regulations on the centralized partnership audit regime. They came out this summer. We've added to them a couple of times in December the proposed regulations. As you may remember, the IRS tried to publish these back in January, but the change in administration caused an order to halt publications of regulations that effectively had them pulled back because as of Inauguration Day, they had actually finished them. They had given them to the Federal Register, but they had actually been printed. They were re-released in June with very minor changes. And the IRS's goal was, or is, or whatever it is, to have these out by January 1st. We'll see if they make it. Now, remember, CPAR is important because now we're switching to an audit regime where by default, the partnership pays tax if the partnership is examined at the highest individual rates. Uh, remember, small partnerships can opt out, but it's likely most of your small partnerships can't opt out because the IRS says if any interests are held in disregarded entities, they're not eligible to make the opt-out election. If you are eligible to opt out, you have to opt out on a timely filed return. So, hey, 2018 returns are where we're going to make these choices. And after an exam, you either could pay the tax, you can attempt to adjust the tax downward by showing what would go to corporations, what would go, what's capital gains and qualified dividends that would go to individuals, and then show or, you know, attempt to, attempt to do a push out and send it out to the partners in the year that was reviewed. All of these require a lot of modifications to partnership agreements. What I want to remind you of is, as we mentioned when we've talked about this before in the past, this is something really that when clients bring their partnership stuff in this year, you really probably should be recommending they go see their attorney to look at potentially redrafting their partnership agreement to deal with this. There are lots of issues involved in this. And when we teach courses on advanced partnership matters, we talk a lot about these cases, these issues uh, that need to be dealt with. So make sure your clients are actually dealing with this in the centralized partnership audit regime. And now the final big development is obviously the big one of the year, and that is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or whatever you might call it. Let's catch you up, because last week we did the two-part program that talked about what was happening there, and we had the conference committee report and the conference bill, but it had not yet passed the Congress, although it looked like it would, and obviously the president hadn't signed it. Well, as of today, the president on December 22nd signed the bill. So that is our date of enactment. This is now officially the law of the land. But there were some changes that took place. It is the biggest change in the tax law in 31 years, and that's important to remember. But it turns out there was a little bit of a hiccup between going from the conference bill we had last Friday to the bill that finally became law. It ran into the infamous bird rule. 
Remember, this was being passed in the Senate and was passed in the Senate with only Republican votes. It was a 51-48 vote. The only senator not voting was Senator John McCain, who is back in Arizona recovering from uh, the treatments he is taking now for his brain cancer problem. So he was back in Arizona. The rest, though, voted pure party line vote. But the bird rule came up, right? Now, why is that important is if you violate the bird rule, bird rule allows you to pass a budget with only a bare majority because you don't need to hold a vote and get 60 votes to allow you to vote. That's the way the Senate works. But it was ruled that three provisions violated the bird rule. Uh, two of them are kind of probably don't matter to you. The first one is they managed to somehow foul up the way they named the short title. So this bill is no longer really officially called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. In fact, you know, you'll see that title is now gone from the bill because they didn't get it put in there correctly. So it's now got a nice super long title that we will ignore. Uh, the other catch was there, there was a provision in there that was to exempt one particular school in Kentucky uh, from the excise tax on private colleges that have large endowments per student. So that one's gone, right? We pulled that one out. And the one that may affect a few people, we had talked about this last week, but it's not part of the bill. Uh, there was a provision to allow you to use 529 funds to pay for homeschooling. That was removed. That was ruled to be off topic as per the Bird Act or per the Bird Rule. So because of that, we couldn't have that in the bill. Important things in this bill to remember. Number one, it lowers the corporate rate to 21% flat rate. So that means that, you know, C corporations are going to pay a 21% flat. If you recall, we no longer have qualified personal service corporations. So, of course, the question becomes, do you consider looking at C's again? You'll have to run the numbers and answer that for the clients. There's, there are pros and cons to doing it. Uh, but, you know, be very careful a big, it's still important that a client plans, if you're going to go the C-Corp route, you really don't want to sell all the assets in two years to somebody. You know, C-Corp may make sense if you need to accumulate funds and you're not going to be selling off the assets anywhere in the near future. There also is the important part of the qualified business income deduction. That's the 20% deduction for flow-through income. As we talked last week, that's not quite that simple. There are all kinds of caveats to go with that rule. You know, the 20% cannot exceed your W-2 cannot, you know, the 20%, if you're above, taxable income is above 157,500 or 315,000 married falling joint. There are limitations that apply that include if you have a service business, qualified service business, uh, we phase out the ability to use any of the 20%. And at the same time, if it's not a qualified, if you know, we also phase in at the same time a rule that limits your deduction to 20% to basically one half of your W-2 wages for the business or 25% of your W-2 wages plus 2.5% of the unadjusted basis of assets you acquired in the last 10 years uh, plus any assets that are not yet fully depreciated that you may have acquired more than 10 years ago so they have a longer life than that. So you always get to keep them for 10 years. Uh, we also had the limitation on the business interest deduction. That will also be a huge issue. You know, if you're if you have a client who is heavily leveraged and spent a lot, there was a write-up in the Wall Street Journal this week that discussed Dell Computer, 
who went out and spent, borrowed a lot of money to do an acquisition and now is facing the fact that a lot of that interest will not be deductible for tax purposes. Uh, you want to take a look at that. That provision can have a very nasty surprise if you have clients who are heavily leveraged and therefore are, you know, have a lot of interest expense, may end up losing a good chunk of it. If you want to find out more about this bill, I'll remind you last week we did two full programs on the bill. So you want to see the December 18th postings uh, on the bill. So we have a section for individual. We also did a section on business. Uh, I'm not going to repeat all that here because that went on, as I said, I think it was an hour and 45 minutes in total approximately that we ran last week for the bill. So it's a lot to look at. Just go over there, take a look at it. I want to welcome you all to 2018 coming up. Hey, Happy New Year. There's still some time for many of you to get CPE from your State Society of CPAs. I know I'm, to plan, I'm scheduled to do courses here in the next couple of months in New Mexico, in Phoenix, Washington, in Washington here in Phoenix for Arizona Society, uh, and also up in Beaverton, Oregon for the Oregon Society. So we've got a few dates coming up in that realm. I'm also be doing some in-firm trading for firms around. Yes, we do that sort of stuff. Contact your state society to find out about booking uh, any of us here with Lascalzo to come into your firm and do a session if that makes sense for your firm. And just enjoy your upcoming 2018 New Year. As I say, don't party too hard on the 1st. And, you know, come back. Remember, after the 1st, we're heading into tax season again. Isn't that fun to be looking for? This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 26th. Uh, current federal tax developments, again, as always, brought to you by the State Society and by the Lascalzo Institute, a Kaplan company. You can catch our updates during the time frame here. I'll be posting some more here shortly on currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. We'll put written updates there. And by the way, next week, I'll get back to telling you what's gone on in the recent past. But the tax bill has been kind of dominating everybody's thoughts, and I've had to do a lot of writing on it. So. We'll get back into the other stuff next week. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to me at zollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com. I do post on Twitter. Mainly what I post is when we post articles online, but I also do make some other times, sometimes point out other issues tax-related. So you can follow me there at Ed Zollers on Twitter. Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you all. This is the last podcast for 2017. We'll be coming back to you next time we come back. It'll be 2018. We'll be starting a brand new year here for the podcast. So until then, we look forward to, you know, have an enjoyable new year. And we'll look forward to seeing you here in the brand new year of 2018.